you. I'm glad to be at the Rip-On Society. That's the way we say it in Tennessee, Rip-On <laughs> Society. And uh, I have a confession to make. Having been a candidate for president in, uh, and having to go to New Hampshire a lot, I had to swear that the Republican Party was founded in New Hampshire. <laughs> but I'm not running anymore, so I'll go back to where my earlier position and agree that it was founded in Ripon, Wisconsin. I even know the founders, which sounds a little bit like saying, you know, George Washington and John Adams, Pete Tries and Gene Morans and Lee Heaver and, and, and those guys. Uh, I've known a long time, so I've known this society for about its entire life and I congratulate you for your for, for your for your work. Um, I'll see if I can summarize things and then see what John has to say and see what you might want what, what you might want to talk about. I think the right place to start with a discussion of education is the larger picture. And I, my suggestion would be that while Education has many purposes that, that the, the larger picture should be for Republicans and for the country is that better schools mean better jobs. I mean, our, our goal as a party should be to try to double the size of our economy so more people can share in the wealth, so we can improve the size of the middle class, so we can keep our standard of living in a more competitive world. And when I became governor, Tennessee was the third poorest state. And so I, my goal was to raise family incomes, and I knew that the government can't raise family incomes. The government doesn't have enough money to do that. So I had to create an environment in which that happened, and I began to explore all the different things you could do to, to do that. And for me, that was the right-to-work law, which helped attract the auto industry in our direction and better highways. and. And, and a whole variety of, of things that we did, change the banking, change the banking laws, etc. But pretty soon I came to the same place that everybody else comes to, which is that better schools mean better jobs. So we embarked on an effort to, to try to improve our education system in Tennessee, which has now been going on about 30 years. And, and in, in the latest NAEP scores released last week, our state was making more rapid progress than any other state in the country, which is a great credit to the teachers of Tennessee and to the principals, but also to you know, several years of governors and legislatures who tried different things, some of which worked in creating an environment to, to do that. Ours became the first state to pay teachers more for teaching well. We had a nice big brawl with the NEA over that, and uh, we're able still to, still to do it. And, uh, but it's not easy to do, and, and so that's, that's where I would start. Now, the three elements of that would be, number one, the K-12 through schools, number two, uh, higher education, and number three, uh, research in science and technology. On K-12, through the, the, the House bill that John and his team fashioned, and the bill that all of our Republicans in the Senate support, and we have, our, our committee in the Senate has probably the broadest ideology that you could have in the, in the United States Senate, from the left to the right, on the Democratic and Republican side, and our Republicans in, in, in our committee has the broadest diversity you could have. Now, we don't have much diversity, but we have some, some diversity. So, uh, but Rand Paul and Tim Scott and Lisa Murkowski and Mark Kerr all support our bill. We're unanimous in this. So we've got 
a pretty good Republican position on what we want to do about kindergarten through the 12th grade. And, and what we could want to do in a positive way would be we would like to create an environment in which governors and teachers and principals can succeed in creating better schools by giving them, moving back to them, the authority to decide for themselves whether schools and teachers are succeeding or failing. Put it in a more negative way, it would be four words, no, no national school board. Now, one might say, well, you're being a little over the top by saying there's a national school board, but the fact is, and most educators know this, that the combination of no child left behind and race to the top and the use of waivers for no child left behind has created such congestion here in Washington on education policy that is, in effect, a national school board. And so while I had a big argument about teacher evaluation, and I think finding fair ways to reward outstanding <coughs> teaching is absolutely crucial to success, I'm not in favor of Washington telling Tennessee how to do it, because I know how hard it is. And, and, and we don't need somebody up here requiring or defining or setting a few well-intentioned parameters, you know, how that goes. You know, we'll come up with good ideas and, and then someone over in the education department will say, well, you know, we need some parameters, which means we don't trust those stupid governors, you know, and legislators with our, with our children. So that's the fundamental goal of both the Senate Republican bill and the bill that, 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 that that John Klein and his team have come up with. There's a lot more I could say about that, but let me go on to the second. Well, one other thing I should say, our bill is 200 pages. The Democratic bill is 1,150 pages. And the, what happens in our, in our markups and hearings, John, is that on the Democratic side, someone will say, I have a good idea. You know, and so let's make everybody do it. Well, it might be a good idea if you were the principal of the school, but we've got lots of Lots of schools in the United States of America, and to come up with a good idea here, make everybody do it, by the time it gets down through there, is in effect a national school board. So a great many of the education associations are either supporting or favorably impressed with what our bills are trying to do because it, it, it recognizes the, 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 the importance of autonomy for schools and for teachers and for, and for others. That's the first thing. Now, higher education. Higher education is, I think of it like the uh, automobile industry in the 1970s. I don't know if any of you read David Halberstam's book uh, called The Reckoning, but basically it said that Detroit in the 1970s that the three big car companies and UAW had become kind of an oligopoly and they were making SUVs and raising prices and raising wages and the Europeans and Japanese were selling one car a week and pretty soon, pretty soon Detroit got into deep, into deep trouble. Uh, Detroit at that time was producing the best cars in the world. I mean, if you go to Japan during that time, they were naming all their cars in, with English names, because like we would name food French names, because the American <laughs> cars were so well. French food's good, so we name we, name, we carry the name over here. So the, the, I mean, the Nissan and Toyota cars in Japan had had English names on them because the standard of the world for cars was 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 here, but. The industry got a little lazy and a little not competitive and didn't do all it could in a rapidly changing world and nearly came to its knees. It's coming back today. I think higher education needs to learn a lesson from that. 
And as we try to create an environment to help it succeed, the one thing I think we need to do is remember what I just said about the importance of letting letting states and teachers and classrooms make their own decisions. There's a there's sometimes is a propensity here, even even for Republicans to say, uh, uh, well, we've got a good idea about higher education. Let's make everybody do it. Costs are going up. They're not teaching this, that, or the other. But the fact is. From a Republican point of view, the higher education system is, is a remarkable ideal in this sense. It's a marketplace of 6,000 autonomous institutions where you have choice and competition because the government money follows the student to the school of their choice. That was an accident that came out of, out of uh, the GI Bill in 1943 and 1944, but it's pervaded and continued through our Pell Grants and through our student loans and through the autonomy of our institutions. So as we work on this environment over the next few years, one of the most important things I think we have to do in higher education is to deregulate it. I've suggested that we ought to start from scratch with a higher education bill because we've reauthorized it eight times and every time there are these well-meaning laws and then well-meaning regulations that are passed and, and I, I've carried them down to the floor of the last higher education bill we had and I voted against it because the new one, the one we're under now, would have twice as many regulations. So it's not that they're bad, they're not even all ideological, they're just there and it just <laughs> happened. And nobody takes time to weed the garden before you plant the next garden. So I've suggested, uh, I mean, take the, the great work John did on student loans. It's been suggested we could have one grant one loan, one tax credit, and make it a lot easier for students to, to figure out what they're doing. In fact, the Pell Grant is worth the same thing at Harvard as it is at National's Auto Diesel College. So why not just let somebody, the argument goes, just push in their income, push in their family size, and they get their Pell Grant instead of going through all this stuff that you have to do to get <coughs> grants. And then all the different kinds of loans have to be confusing to most people who apply for them. So that's my take on higher education. Then last, and then I'll stop, is, is our position in the world. Uh, let's call it whether America can compete. Uh, in 2005, I was in a budget hearing, and I, it was distressing to me because it sounded like the experience I used to have as governor, where I'd watch the Medicaid funding go up at such a rapid rate that it was squeezing out the dollars I wanted to spend on centers of excellence at universities or to reward outstanding teaching. And I thought we couldn't be a great state if we spent all our money on health care when we had these other needs in research and teaching and, and education. And I saw, and it's even worse here, you know, you see the entitlement side of the budget going up 74% over 10 years and the discretionary side pretty well under control at about 10 or 12 squeezing out a lot of the things we should be doing because we're spending too much over on this side. Well, I think that, that especially applies to our research uh, and that especially is important to Republicans. That day after that budget hearing, I walked down the National Academy of Sciences and I said, I believe if you give us the 10 things in priority that we should do to make our country more competitive, we would do them as a Congress. So they formed a commission, Norm Augustine headed it, it's called Rising Above the Gathering Storm. They recommended 20 things, we worked for a couple of years, and two-thirds of them have done. One of them was to double funding for research and development over seven years, which is 
our goal, but we're not moving very rapidly in that direction. Now that's how we do it in this country. Uh, same year I was in China uh, with a group of senators and we met Mr. Hu and Mr. Wu, the number two guys and the number one guy in China. And rather than talk about North Korea and Iran and Iraq and all of Taiwan, all the things you thought they'd talk about, they wanted to talk about competitiveness. They saw that the United States creates about 20% of, 22% of all the wealth in the world each year for just 4% of the people, and they wanted a bigger share of it. And they saw that our brain power advantage was the basis of our wealth over a period of time. So Mr. Hu decided to go down to the Great Hall of China and he assembled everybody and he said over the next 15 years we're going to devote 4% of our GDP sure. to research and development. Well, by, by, uh, by comparison, we devote 4% of our budget to, 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 to research and development. So they don't have to go through this messy democratic process that we do. <laughs> but, the, but, the, but the America Competes legislation, which we hope to authorize this year, is, in my view, a pro-growth Republican yeah. position that we ought to that we ought to take and, and, and do the best that we do the best that we can. So that's my view of, of where we are in the three major uh, areas of education, the K through 12 area. We have substantial agreement between the House, House and the Senate Republicans. If we had a majority, we could pass a bill in a very short period of time in the Senate. And I hope we do. Higher education, I think, among other things, we should be regulated. And on, on, on research and development, I think instead of subsidies, we should aggressively support the idea of Republicans of making research and development uh, an important part of a pro-growth economy. Thank you. Well, good morning. <coughs> I told uh, Lamar that I was just going to say whatever he said. Um, of course, I'm a politician, so microphone, so that, that won't happen. Now, Mike, Nancy, it's really good to see you back here. It's, it's a little tinge of nostalgia. Very nice to have you here. Mike, thanks for coming over here. Mike Kelly is one of our colleagues, of course, and he's a Reportedly a pretty good car salesman. He's a damn good legislator. <laughs> I know that some days you'd like to go back to work something. Sort of four or five days a week. Uh, <clears throat> I think it's, it is remarkable the agreement that we've got, not just Lamar and I personally, but the, uh, the Senate Republicans and the House Republicans. Uh, on making changes that we need to make. Uh, when I became chairman of the committee, it was already three or four years overdue for reauthorizing No Child Left Behind. And when we finally brought a bill to the floor, uh, I think it was 11 years, and that bill, which we passed, um, that's the only reauthorization of the Elementary and Secondary Education Act that's made it to any floor anywhere. So. While we agree um, remarkably on the issues, uh, it is clear that not everybody does. It is hard to get this to move. And I think that in our efforts, uh, we tried, as some of you may remember, to break it up. We were coming off of what we thought was the disaster, and now proven to be, 
disaster of the Affordable Care Act, where you had this huge piece of legislation, which uh, we now know is absolute true, that people didn't read, and after they did read it, they found out that it was a, it was a nightmare. So we didn't want to try to do a big piece of legislation like that, and, and uh, John Boehner was of the idea that smaller bites would be better, and that made sense to us, and so we moved three pieces of legislation. Uh, one of them uh, had huge bipartisan support and passed uh, overwhelmingly in the House, and as so many things, my apologies, went over to the Senate and, and went into the dark hole. <laughs> so, um, we, we didn't want to let up because it needs to be done. And as uh, Lamar said, uh, we have an administration that really has decided that they are the nation's school board uh, and the nation's superintendent. And so with the incredibly large intrusion of the federal government that came into education, K-12, that came with No Child Left Behind, You've now added a race to the top, and you've added waivers, and you've added waivers too because they're going to districts now. Um, that's an awful way. That's an awful way to set education policy. So we felt it was imperative to get legislation passed that would reduce that federal footprint and restore local control, empower parents and teachers. Put education back where it where it belongs, uh, and and I still believe that is an imperative because the conditional temporary waivers are still conditional and temporary, and the states who have them, including uh, my own, are finding out that uh, it's not everything they thought. So <coughs> teachers are upset. Teachers union is upset. Principals are upset, so that it needs to be it needs to be fixed, and we are <coughs> intent on continuing to push that. And I, I don't want it to die in the dark Senate uh, chamber over there. We need we need Senator Harkin to work with Senator Alexander and get something moving over there. And and certainly we don't have to agree. You know, it's the old uh, schoolhouse rock thing about how the bill becomes a law. We need to pass something to the House. We've done that. Now the Senate needs to pass something so we can, we can continue to move this forward. Uh, we feel like it's pretty good legislation. Uh, we had some uh, differences on the teacher evaluation piece. I think it's very important, as does Senator Alexander, that there be meaningful teacher evaluations. Uh, I thought it was important that we put some language in telling the states they had to do such a thing. Not how to do it, but they had to do such a thing. But we had an open process. And that was taken out, and so neither the bill that passed the House nor the Senate version has that right now. And I think uh, Senator Alexander is right that the, that the states are being responsible, and almost all of them, certainly Tennessee and Minnesota, are going to be responsible. That will be a factor because the kids deserve good teachers. There's plenty of them out there. Unfortunately, there's some who are not. So, uh, higher ed, let me just, because he brought it up, let me just briefly say it, it needs uh, to be reauthorized. We've held almost a dozen hearings now in, uh, in the committee on higher ed, looking at all kinds of aspects. We had a hearing yesterday, fascinating, talking about, about uh, student aid. We talked about the one loan, one grant, one tax deal. Yep, that's very, very interesting uh, idea. 
Uh, I found that the, the whole panel, the Republican witnesses and the Democrat witnesses, nobody suggested that we needed a more complicated system. <laughs> it's a nightmare. It is an absolute nightmare. And any of you who have kids are getting ready to go to college, God bless you, because it is incredible, incredibly difficult to work your way through the FAFSA and all the stuff that you have to do. And I think that needs to be done too, and I, and I again, because we do see eye to eye on so many things, it's the regulations right now in higher education that are killing them. We had a hearing last year, and one of the witnesses brought a stack of three ring binders about this big and plumped them down on the witness table. And those weren't the regulations. Those were the indices to the regulations that, that the schools have to go through, not a regulation. So, Simplifying that <coughs> would be very helpful, and that's been a theme that we've done on almost everything that we have done in the committee, is get rid of duplicative programs, streamline, simplify, make it easier for students and administrators at, at all levels. So we have eliminated in our legislation a lot of programs because there's just no reason for them to be there. It doesn't help the kids. Need flexibility, and that was a key thing that we did in the K-12 legislation because superintendent after superintendent said, "Mr. Chairman, he'd say, I, you know, I got money here, and I frankly don't need it. I'm desperate for it here, and I don't have it, and I can't move this money over. I need flexibility." So that was a key part of what we're trying to do, and I hope certainly uh, insist that that stay as we go forward, so that there is the flexibility for. The superintendents and principals at the local level to make good decisions about how the money ought to be spent. Okay, you guys have questions, I know, so I'm going to go sit over there and let uh, Senator Alexander answer. <laughs> question this morning is about uh, ensuring we have an adequate supply of uh, work-ready graduates coming out of our uh, K through 12 systems as well as uh, community college and, and higher ed as well so many companies as you know IBM as well we have a lot of openings but we're looking for the right skill whether it's a PhD or master's degree person in computer science or someone with a, an associate's degree who can manage uh, you know the the back, uh, the back set of the IT system, we're looking for all those skill sets. So we're concerned that some of our career and technical education programs are just not linking up with post-secondary and secondary education programs. We're really thrilled, Chairman Klein, that you're holding a hearing on reauthorizing Perkins next week. And so just wanted to get your thoughts on how can we better equip our youth with the skill sets to match the economic demands of not just today, but also in the, in the coming years. Can I go first? <laughs> um, see, she makes me so proud. <laughs> <laughs> feel like a kid's grown up, doing well out there. <laughs> As my legislative director for years, she was you know, used to carry me on her shoulders. <laughs> so good question. And it, it is a problem recognized everywhere. And I think that you have to take a multi Facet approach. One thing, the whole Workforce Investment Act, sort of big bureaucratic uh, mess, uh, needs to be fixed. And as you, you know, uh, Elena, we, we moved legislation uh, in the House to uh, fix that. We call ours uh, Skills Act or something, but it, it is to uh, 
better tie the training and education that people get with, with the jobs that are available. So we thought it was very important to put a super majority of employers on these boards to make that connection. There's no point in getting training on how to weave uh, you know, buggy whips or something if that's not where the job is. So um, I, that's a piece of it. I am, I do think that STEM education is important, but it's too easy to just say, well, we need STEM education. And again, I know, Elaine, you know this very well, but <clears throat> a couple years ago, I was invited down to speak at a chamber event in Rochester, Minnesota, had chambers from around the country. And they were there to decide what they could do to improve STEM education. And I was there apparently to talk about the federal role. And so knowing that I was going to be there to talk about the federal role, I turned to my very excellent staff and said, well, how many STEM, federal STEM programs are there? 209. And I told them, I would say today, I don't think the answer is 210. <laughs> we need to look at what these are and, and do something that, that, uh, that makes sense. But fundamentally, at the core of all this is the schools have to succeed. And we, we, as you all know, we have uh, remedial training that goes on in colleges all over this country because kids come out of, the, out of uh, their senior year and, and they really can't even read and write. So there's some specific things that we're looking at, but fundamentally, if we get the schools working, we solve a lot of them. Now, Senator will tell us the real answer. <laughs> well, that was pretty good. <laughs> the uh, starting where John started, the uh, I sat around a table Friday in Kingsport with a group of about 60 people about the Workforce Investment Act and those programs and how it affects them. There are 47 federal workforce programs, 44 of them duplicate one another, and 16 of them are in the Workforce Investment Act. And the House bill is a lot better than the Senate bill because it gives more flexibility to that group of people that, that are that are down there. <coughs> One thing they told me, I guess I should have known, and maybe I heard it didn't hear it right, but they were talking about as a way to, well, let's move to the second part. How, how does IBM, if they were in Kingsport, have a steady supply of, of, of properly trained people? This is the biggest problem for every governor, every state. Has been for a while. I know when Nissan came to Tennessee 30 years ago, all we did for them was screen their employees. Uh, and we screened thousands of people for for the first few hundred jobs. That was the best thing we could do for them, but screen them and then train them. They suggested, they were having some success with an ACT version, a, a, a career ready ACT, and that, uh, that I guess ACT offers. And basically it tells you that, that uh, if you have a good score on this, you're ready for a career. And so my suggestion to them was, well, if I were recruiting industry for Kingsport, I think I'd say we have the highest percentage of people who pass the ACT career ready in, you know, in the state or in the region. In other words, go out and make that a big part of your goal. Uh, the, the, I, think the, I think the answer to your question lies within the states. I think you have to hook up the community colleges, the technical institutes with the local businesses and, and literally screen and train people for the jobs that exist. And I think we try to do very much of that from here. We'll end up like the Workforce Investment Act, with, which most governors look at and say, I, you know, I, Tennessee gets $145 million from that. And, and former governor president told me, said, I just 
and he was a very good governor, Democratic governor. He just, I just, I just told him, you know, do what they could with it. And I went over and worked on something else because it was such a big complexity that he, he just couldn't do much with it. Thank you. Anyone else? Go ahead. Senator, uh, Senator Baucus and the Finance Committee staff have been looking at consolidating federal tax incentives with regard to education. Have they brought you in the loop on that, or do you have any feel for what they might be up to? I don't think so. <laughs> we haven't heard from them. No, they haven't. We, we have a hearing today, and we, as John mentioned, or the proposal, you know, one loan, one grant, one tax credit is out there, so I suppose I'll hear some about that today, but the answer is no. Um, I spoke to John about this before, but I'll ask you some more. Um, the whole business, you mentioned, you know, K-12, the whole business of early childhood education, uh, all the way from home visits uh, to Head Start uh, to pre kindergarten, et cetera. There's legislation introduced uh, yesterday. I'm not suggesting that people uh, go too crazy over that because it's quite a cost attached to it. But there's a lot of, in between the uh, sequestration and the budget problems, there's a lot of reductions in some of these costs and, and that kind of thing. But I was interested in your views in terms of at least protecting what is there or any possible help that. Uh, you know, could be given to that very early education segment. Thanks, Mike. And it's, I wish you were in the Senate. That would be what I'd like to say. We served as governor together, known each other a long time. I'm a great fan of Mike Castle. Uh, two points on that, I guess. One is uh, the, the best way to Mary and I were just talking about the best way to relieve the sequester pressure on education, research, and all that is to recognize that the mandatory side of the budget is going up 74% over the next 10 years, and we can't sustain that. And you have agreement among Republican senators, anyway, that if we can find two or $300 billion of savings over here, that we can move most of it over here onto the discretionary side and even spread it out over the next 10 years. If, now that's a lot of money. That could be 20 or $30 billion a year added to the current Budget Control Act numbers on the discretionary side. And that plus the normal increases that began in 2015 would relieve a lot of pressure on not just military, but non-military space. So that's the general obvious solution. And you've got agreement on that really because the president has seven or $800 billion in his budget that Republicans in the Senate agree with on as, as far as savings go. So we ought to be able to find a third of that and move some of that over and do it that way, keeping the top line the same. So that's one part of the answer. The, the uh, second part is we spent $13 billion on early childhood education already, and we had, I think we worked together on that, these centers of excellence to try to help local communities spend that money more wisely and expand that over time. Finally, I'm, I'm really skeptical of a federal universal or preschool education program until I really read it carefully because it, it'll be like Medicaid if we don't watch it, which is a noble idea, 
a press conference taking credit for it, not much federal money, lots of federal rules, and send the bill to the governor. And, and when Medicaid was, uh, when I was governor, Medicaid was 8% of our budget. Today in Tennessee is 26% of our budget, and that's the reason college tuitions are going up and state support for higher education is going down. So I'm, I'm going to be skeptical of a proposal unless it's fully funded up here for whatever its purpose is. I know you and I talk, Mike, but uh, I'm going to just underscore something that the senator said. We're already spending money. We already have programs, and you and I touched on that this morning. Um, Head Start being a, a, certainly a an example of that. We need to make sure those programs are working, doing what they're supposed to be doing. This, the present proposal, let's everybody understand, this is a $75 billion new program that starts uh, cost shifting almost immediately where uh, states pay something like 10% and then they end up paying 100%. And it's just going to be unsustainable. It, it is. It does fit the example of a program like Medicaid where all that money just shifts and it's not there. So before I could remotely begin to support uh, a new $75 billion, and you know how these things are, you remember very well, it's 75 but really it's probably 175 you, you can't do that. Let's go back to your earlier point and look at the programs that are out there and make sure that we're getting a return because you add those, uh, you know, the child development and uh, I think there's four or five major major programs that come in at sort of those one, two, three billion dollar levels. Let's go back and, and make sure that Head Start Down are doing what they're supposed to be doing. And, and they can work. There are examples of them working, but just inventing a new $75 billion program, sorry, doesn't make sense right now. We have time for one last question. Mr. Albright. Thank you. Um, I don't want to ask a question that's so broad that will Did you get a long answer? <laughs> <laughs> but it seems whether it's education or, or whatever the topic may be when we have these kinds of discussions, invariably we're talking about what uh, elected officials can do to unravel the mess that the federal government has gotten the states into. Uh, on a regulatory front from business, there are lots of reform <coughs> bills out there that would change the way <coughs> various agencies do work and evaluate uh, their performance. Is there anything specific to education that would change the standards, that change the way that the Department of Education of the federal government actually goes about its business? as far as the regulatory side so I, in other words <laughs> in other words rather than say all right there are 100 and 100 no no I know what you're programs. saying the I know the way to do that I mean and I've proposed it and I hope we can do it and that is to start from scratch I mean I think we ought to start from scratch with a higher education plan, for example in other words uh, I've asked our staff to do that. Either the whole thing or do it piece by piece. By piece, you could say, let's take, uh, let's take grants. 
federal grants. That's a lot of money. I think the federal grants $35 billion, something like that a year. And, it, and I came up here 10 years ago with my goal to simplify the application process. I'm very proud of what we got. I've got a copy of it. You know, carry over the hearing. It's you know, pretty complicated. So, but, but it's, it, it's, we've reauthorized higher education. Congress has eight times. And I know what's happened. Every time, you just pass a law, and then you send over here to some department, you know, and after four or five years, you know, all the regulations are out in their way up here. And nobody pays attention to this. Who's going to read them? Who, I mean, who's, the, the next administration has come to town, and they don't even know they're there. So I don't know any way to deal with that, except on a non-ideological way, <coughs> to say we're going to start from scratch as much as we can and see if we can write, maybe it is one grant <coughs> or one loan or one tax credit. Maybe we can or take each piece of the Higher Education Act and then pass a simple law in plain English and then send that over and have new regulations based on that that eliminate all the existing regulations. I just think you have to have a continuous process that works your way through weeding the garden that is as effective as the existing process of planting the garden. And that's the only real way I know to do it. I think, but you have to fix it with legislation uh, because the process is out there now and, and as we're seeing in this administration, I'm sure other administrations have done as well, but there is an incredible <coughs> appetite for regulating. And in every industry, you have regulations. Some of them out there are posing real existential threats to entire industries. The EPA comes to mind. But, but it's all over the place. It, and it's, it's in education, it's in higher education. The Department of Education has got uh, negotiated rulemaking going on and all of, uh, all of these things that are really, really problematic for uh, businesses all across the country. So you can fix it legislation, go in and <laughs> wipe that out, except, oh, you have to be able to pass the legislation. And right now, that's proving to be a, a little bit, a little bit right. difficult. So we're, we can pass it in the House, and we have. We have passed all kinds of legislation that moves in that direction, eliminates. In fact, there's a bill we've had a couple of times, I think we call it the RAINS Act, where it says if this is a major piece of legislation, you've got to come back to Congress and get a stamp. You can't just push it through. So the, the answer lies in, in legislation because we know not just, again, not just administration, but the bureaucracy is going to have a better idea. As I said, a new administration has arrived. They've got a better idea. So let's just make a regulation. I've got, got to fix it. Let me make, just follow that. I mean, I mean, I think this is a very important point. They'll never make the front pages of any newspaper, but it's just vitally important to have the government work. This, I think, has a real chance to succeed. Let me give you an example. Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren, with whom I almost always disagree. <laughs> when she was working for the Consumer Bureau, which I oppose, came up with an idea, which is a good one, which is let's see if we can make the mortgage application one page. Now anybody who's ever bought a house knows the nonsense you go through right with the mortgage application. You, you couldn't fill it out. Nobody reads it. It doesn't protect any consumer. It's just, it's just thick. And because somebody somewhere said, you've got to do this. So they're, they're coming up with one. It's three pages. 
But that's better than what there is. So I think we could probably work through the Higher Education Act, John. Maybe it's piece by piece, but in a non-ideological way. You know, and that the Republicans could probably do it just themselves in the House, but they might. You know, we might be able to do it and just say, surely after eight reauthorizations, there's a lot of junk in there. And rather than, it's going to be easier, like a charter school, sometimes it's easier to start over. 